this is David Beeson welcoming you to chapter 54 of A History of England. This is where we take a first look at how success doesn't always succeed in English history, and at a recurring event, which is when the cost-cutters take charge. Now, sometimes things can be done on the cheap, even empire building. We've already seen an instance of this in the behaviour of the East India Company towards India. As its power and influence grew, the company found itself increasingly swamped with money, both from tribute paid by local rulers it had subdued or made into allies, or simply from taxation. At the end of the Seven Years' War, for instance, the Mughal emperor himself had awarded Robert Clive the Diwani for Bengal, giving the company responsibility for financial administration and, above all, the right to collect taxes. Sadly for the Bengalis, the distinction between tax and loot wasn't always clear to the East India Company. It had similar authority into other major regions of India. Granting so much authority to the East India Company was a measure of the continued decline of the Mughal Emperor's powers, but also an indication of the huge growth of the company's might. It could now dictate terms to those who had once ruled over much of India, and now had to bow to its will. Above all, this new status put the company in an enviable position, at least for imperialists. It collected the revenue it needed to keep the Indian people subjected from the subjected people themselves. It milked the country for money and then used some of that money to bribe local so-called rulers and reduce them to puppets, and some of the money to pay for armed forces, many manned by Indian soldiers, though under British officers, to ensure that it could always impose its will by force if push came to shove. Getting people to pay for their own oppression is a smart and cheap way of extending your imperial power. Nice if you can get away with it. Unfortunately, only the East India Company had pulled off that ingenious trick. And as we now well know, the East India Company wasn't the British state. The British state itself had taken a different approach to winning an empire. It had followed the aggressive and expansionist line of William Pitt the Elder. He, you'll remember, was Prime Minister in all but name from early in the Seven Years' War. He'd led the country through a string of victories, but he'd done it by spending money like the stuff was going out of fashion. He'd borrowed heavily from both British and Dutch bankers, and public debt had mushroomed. Estimates vary, but it looks as though British national debt stood at some £74.6 million at the start of the war, but reached £132.6 million by the end. The economy, as measured by gross domestic product, GDP, had also grown during the war, but even so, debt had increased from an already eye-watering 101% of GDP to 141%. To get a sense of what that means, the government that lost the general election of 2010 came under severe attack for taking national debt to 70% of GDP. Concern about debt has been a constant thread running through certain circles of British politics right down to the present day. It doesn't matter what the debt has bought, even if it's a world empire as in Pitt's time, it's debt itself that frightens. People with that economic outlook see the attitude to debt that Pitt embodied as appallingly reckless. Unfortunately for Pitt, in his time, a hugely influential figure led that tendency, the King. 
William Pitt and his friends had once set great hopes on the death of George II. His eldest son, Frederick, the Prince of Wales, was a friend and supporter, while George was anything but. Frederick would be an ally when he mounted the throne. That was important as the king still chose ministers. Admittedly, he could only pick ones who had a parliamentary majority behind them, but with his still considerable wealth and patronage, he could generally buy the votes necessary to make sure his preferred candidates had one. That, however, all went belly up. Frederick died nine years before his dad. So George II was succeeded by his grandson, George III. Unlike his grandfather and great-grandfather, George III was born in Britain and spoke English rather than German as his first language. He was very conscious and proud of that distinction, announcing on his accession that, born and educated in this country, I glory in the name of Britain. Things still didn't look too bad for Pitt. The new king had studied under a tutor who was a friend of Pitt's, a Scottish nobleman, John Stuart, the third Earl of Bute. He became a firm favourite of the future kings. It was pretty much a betting certainty that Bute would fly high politically just as soon as his disciple mounted the throne. The former student of a friend of his, that could still be helpful to Pitt. Sadly, that's not how things worked out. Bute, once his disciple was on the throne, showed himself to be far less of a friend than Pitt fondly believed. Nor was the king a fan. Both belonged to the cost-cutting school of thought focused on reducing debt, and they were horrified by Pitt's apparent profligacy. George III mounted the throne in 1760, just the year after all the glorious victories of 1759. Buoyed by so much success, Pitt was hard to bring down just then. But as the costs of the continuing Seven Years' War kept mounting, the consternation of his opponents grew too. Was he driving the country into bankruptcy? How would debts that massive ever be cleared? How could Pitt be stopped before debt went from painful to downright catastrophic? They started to chip away at his power base, waiting for their opportunity. That came when he moved to have Britain declare war on Spain as well as France. The supporters of the king rose against this entirely unacceptable extension of an already excessively costly war, even though within months they would actually be declaring war on Spain themselves. Pitt was gracious enough not to say, told you so. That all came too late for Pitt anyway. His enemies had already triumphed and in 1761, just two years after the Great Year of Wonders, and two years before the end of a war in which he'd achieved so much, he found himself isolated and with a majority against him in government itself. He resigned. Success had not succeeded. As a further bitter pill, George Grenville, Pitt's friend and ally of 20 years since they'd worked together against Robert Walpole in the dying days of his government, decided to stay on as a minister instead of resigning with him. Their ways now parted and stayed parted for the next decade. Technically, Pitt had only been leader of the House of Commons. The nominal Prime Minister, Newcastle, clung on to office for a few more months before, inevitably, the King's favourite, Bute, took over. Bute was the first Scottish Prime Minister of Great Britain since the country got started as the Union of England and Scotland. 
He also headed the first Tory administration since the end of Queen Anne's reign nearly half a century earlier. Time for a brief aside about Bute. Do you remember that we talked way back in episode 41 about Lady Mary Wortley Montague? She was the remarkable woman who introduced smallpox inoculation to England. She married against her dad's wishes by eloping with her future husband. However, when their own daughter, also called Mary, decided to marry, they too hesitated about giving their consent. So the younger Mary also eloped. It's funny how children who rebel so often become authoritarian parents themselves. Who was the husband the younger Mary eloped with? Why, none other than the same Bute. It seems he wasn't grand enough for the parents, perhaps because he belonged to the Scots aristocracy, not nearly noble enough for many in England. Mary Wortley Montague lived long enough to see him become Prime Minister, but I don't know whether that made her revise her opinion of him. So much for his private life. As for his public service, here he was in the highest office of the land, unless you count the monarchy itself, and powerful though the king still was, he was steadily losing authority. Since Bute's government and his king were really, really concerned about how much the war was costing, their priority was to bring it to an end as quickly as possible, which the government did in 1763 with the Treaty of Paris. That gave back territories to France, like the islands of Guadeloupe and Martinique, the latter of which had resisted a British invasion in the 1759 Year of Wonders, but still fell in 1762, along with fishing rights off the Canadian coasts. Pitt was disgusted. Why win so many battles if you're going to give back canes like that? To be fair, but I suspect Pitt had no wish to be fair, there were plenty of gains that Britain hung on to. Next, Bute and the King felt they had to get the public finances back under control. They agreed they had to get military expenditure down to pre-war levels as quickly as possible. Then debt had to start being paid off. There was, however, one area where government had to be careful about scaling down military commitment. The North American colonies, as we've seen, were the most precious possession of the empire at that time. The British government felt they still needed active defence against the French and Spanish. Now, here's where the East India Company's wonderful arrangements were so enviable to the British government, and so unattainable. Indians paid for the East India Company's control over them. There was no way the same trick could be pulled off in North America. There was no equivalent of the Mughal emperor who could be defeated by military force on the battlefield and corrupt backhanders off it, leading to Bute's government being granted the right to exact taxation from the colonists, as the East India Company did from those parts of the Indian population who lived under its control. In any case, the colonists in North America weren't foreigners. They were fellow Englishmen, with a few Scots, Irish and Welsh thrown in. That meant that they enjoyed the same rights as Englishmen back in the home country. They shared their history and culture, including the bitter resistance to Stuart taxation that had led to the civil wars. And race played a significant role too. England didn't feel as easy about simply trampling over Englishmen as it would if they were Indians. Loot was a word, as we saw, that entered the English language from India. Englishmen in the East India Company had no qualms about applying that practice against Indians. But for the British Empire, on the other hand, 
it proved difficult simply to loot its compatriots in America. Something different was needed because some solution had to be found. The British government was sure that there ought to be some equity in the way the costs of defence were shared. Not just the costs of ongoing protection, but also the costs of the war just finished. After all, the American colonists had gained massively from that war. It wasn't just Wolfe's victory at Quebec, but Montreal had fallen too a little later, securing Canada. And, further south, the French position had also been broken. Do you remember how George Washington, Edward Braddock or the Earl of Loudoun had been crushed in their attempts to seize the French Fort Duquesne at the forks of the Ohio? Well, now it too had fallen. As a mark of respect to the statesman who'd made the endlessly delayed victory finally possible, the place was renamed. William Pitt the Elder has his monument in the United States. It's the city of Pittsburgh. Having gained so much from the war, it seemed only fair that the North American colonists should contribute to paying down the debts incurred to wage it. Englishmen everywhere were going to have to come up with some more tax. It didn't matter whether they were Englishmen in Britain or in the colonies. They'd all have to swallow the pill and reach into their pockets. That was a decision that sounded reasonable and fair. The colonists, however, disagreed, and that disagreement would have historic consequences. But before we get into all that, let's have a little digression next time to discover how helpful it could be to the world's leading sea power for its sailors to know where they were at sea. Thanks for listening.